You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Hey, why don't you join me in your hearts as I pray for us and our time in God's Word. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come to you, as always, just in need. We need to hear from you. We want to know you more. We want to love you more. And we can't do that unless you come and you speak to us and we receive it and you do the work of transforming our hearts. And so that's what we're asking for, God. Would you do that work in us right now, today? And we ask it in Jesus' good name, amen. How do you feel about Colonel Sanders? Yeah, I'm talking about the KFC guy. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. I'm not talking about his chicken, by the way. I know some of you guys think he puts an addictive chemical in it that makes you crave it fortnightly. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Uh, but, I, but I'm talking about the man, not the chicken. And, and Colonel Sanders was an interesting guy, in case you didn't know this. Uh, late in his life, he actually became a devoted Christian. And also late in his life, he started the very first KFC franchise. So I think he was like in his 60s when he first began to franchise these things. And he made millions and millions of dollars, but he sought to give most of it away. He was famous for having said, there's no reason to be the richest man in the cemetery. Kind of love that quote. You know? It's kind of old-timey, right? And uh, at the same time, there are certainly people who don't share Colonel Sanders' sentiment in that statement. And one of them is John Paul Getty. You guys ever heard of him? He was, one of, he was at one point the richest man on earth. And uh, he's probably also at the same time the stingiest man on earth. Uh, you may have heard the story of his grandson who was kidnapped. Uh, his grandson's name was John Paul Getty III. He was kidnapped and he was held for ransom. And the, the kidnappers were requesting, requiring John Paul Getty Sr. to pay them $17 million. This was in the 1970s. That's a lot of money. John Paul Getty Sr. believed that his grandson had faked the whole thing, and, and so he was kind of resistant to doing anything. He, he thought his grandson just wanted his money. In fact, he was even quoted as saying, I have 14 other grandchildren, and if I pay those guys one penny now, the, the kidnappers, then I will have 14 kidnapped grandchildren. Okay, so this is, this is kind of the mentality of this man, and this back and forth went on between Getty Sr. and the kidnappers for five months. For five months, he was resistant and, and just totally stingy. And, and the kidnappers sent him all these messages with the cut-out pieces of magazines like you see in movies, right? And, and eventually, this all culminated in them uh, chopping off his grandson's ear and sending it to a Roman newspaper so that they could publicize how terrible Getty was and hopefully get him to finally move on this thing. And by then, it was very clear that this kidnapping was actually real, but Getty stubbornly blamed his grandson for allowing the thing to happen in the first place. 
And by the end, he talked the kidnappers down to $3 million from $17 million, and then he only paid them $2 million of the $3 million that they had agreed to. And why did he arrive at that number? It's because it was the maximum amount that his lawyers advised him he was allowed to write off on his taxes. Okay. <laughs> Finally, Getty III was released, and he tried to call his grandfather to thank him for paying his ransom, but Getty Sr. wouldn't speak to him. Crazy story, right? Kind of unbelievable. And it's easy for us to sit back and to point a finger at him and go, man, I cannot believe how much that guy was, how stingy he was and how much he worshipped money. But we have to remember that this is an issue of scale. What I mean by that is most of us aren't the richest man in the world, right? (laughs) Most of us. And are we just as stingy with our $100 as he was with his $2 million? Are we just as prone to idolize our possessions? Today, Jesus is going to cause us to ask ourselves, do we love money more than God? Or do we use money to express our love for God? The big idea is because God is our treasure... We must be devoted, not divided. And Jesus is going to teach us wisely how to live, beginning with what not to do, okay? This is the pattern that he's had for at least the last chapter or so. We're going to begin in verse 19. Here's what not to do. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Don't do this. Don't do it. Don't, don't accumulate. Don't store up stuff on earth. Why? Because it will all eventually be destroyed or taken. That's why. You guys remember when the iPhone came out? Believe it or not, that was 2007. Does that seem like, I don't know if that seems like a long time ago or very recent, but it was 2007. You might have even seen some of those infographic kind of Pictures where they'll have before iPhone, all the phones, the way that they looked, and then after the iPhone, and pretty much all of them look like an iPhone, because that's just how innovative it was when it came out, right? And it was this revolutionary technology. You had the 2G that first year. The second year, you had the 3G. The third year, or fourth, whatever it is, fourth year, you had the 4G, and it just kept going. You could buy a new iPhone every single year because that's how fast the technology was advancing. In fact, that was my goal, I'll admit, at the time. My friends and I all wanted to be up on top of what the latest tech was at any given moment. I don't know if it's just getting older or if it's the iPhone is older now, but that's long gone for me. I don't know about for you guys. Uh, now it's sort of like, who cares, right? <laughs> I don't even know what iPhone is the latest iPhone. Is it the 12 or the 13 or the 14? I don't know. And many of us have a drawer at home with a pile of old smartphones that were the hottest, most just innovative thing ever when they were originally released. Can I get an amen to that? Do we have that? Right? Now those things are outdated garbage and we can't even bring ourselves to throw them away. Or drive down to Best Buy and have them recycled, right? It would actually be nice 
if some moths would come or some rust would come and destroy these things, or some, some thieves would break in and steal our tech junk. We'd be happy about that, wouldn't we? And see, that's a good illustration of the reality of what Jesus is talking about here. What was once a treasure became nothing. This is the way that it goes with the things of this world. Do you have something, a a material possession that if it were lost or damaged or taken away from you, it would be like someone took your very life from you? A car, a house, a 401k, a retirement plan? Is there something you would feel like someone took your life if they took it from you? What was once a treasure will one day become nothing. Everything will be like our smartphone graveyards. Do you get that? Everything. One day we will all die. Everything we have will either go to someone else or it'll go in a steaming landfill somewhere. And the strange thing is, even though we may know that in our heads, we still elevate things in our hearts. We still lay up for ourselves treasures here on earth. We still accumulate stuff on earth. But Jesus is going to show us a better treasure. He says, don't store up treasures on earth. But, verse 20, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. And so Jesus is saying the best place to store up treasure is in heaven. And there are a lot of Christians, a lot of people that go, oh yeah, Jesus, that's, that sounds awesome. I'm going to have the biggest mansion in heaven. I'm going to have the most jewels in my crown. I'm going to have all the best stuff. Thanks, Jesus. But we know that's not the point, right? That's not what Jesus is saying he's not saying that God's going to give you better stuff to idolize in the next life. That's not his point. He's saying that eternal treasures are found in God himself. God himself. These eternal treasures will never rot because God will never rot, right? And, and as I started thinking about that this week, I was reminded of verses like, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, where it says that love never ends. Love never ends. It says that other gifts, even spiritual gifts, will pass away. Everything else will pass away, but love goes on forever because God goes on forever. His love for us will never end. And that flows then out into others. This will last into eternity. And so find your greatest treasure in the only one who is worth living for. That's what Jesus is saying. Why? Because in verse 21, he answers that question. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is the root of what Jesus is after here. This is where everything is leading. Because from God's perspective, Who really cares whether you have stuff? I mean, God's made us to have dominion on earth. He expects that we are going to have stuff. It's not the stuff that is the problem. The question is, where is your heart? 
You see, there's a difference between storing up treasures, that's what Jesus is talking about, versus simply having stuff. The difference is the place where it is in your heart. If you want your heart's eternal condition to be like that wool sweater in your closet that's half eaten by moths, or you want your heart's eternal condition to be like that broken down truck out in the yard that is being eaten by rust, then go ahead, lay up treasures for yourself here on earth. But if you want your heart's eternal condition to be vibrant and thriving and growing and giving, then lay up, store up treasures in heaven. So let's be clear, the problem is not stuff. It's where our treasure is. It's where our heart is. You see, elsewhere in the Bible, it says the wise person leaves an inheritance for their grandchildren, Proverbs 13, 22. Giving an inheritance, having things is not a bad thing. It is actually a good thing. So we don't want to create a false dichotomy here. Jesus is not saying that stuff is bad. He's saying that elevating stuff to the place of treasuring it Loving it, worshiping it, is bad. You understand the difference when it comes to an inheritance. You understand the difference between those two things. If you've ever had a parent die and you've witnessed the greed and the legal battles that go on among your siblings, you recognize how distorted this can get in the context of an inheritance. But on the flip side... Being able to receive an inheritance can actually be a huge blessing when it's not idolized. You know, my family is not wealthy by any means, but my parents and grandparents are people who sought to steward what God gave to them and to leave an inheritance. And years ago when Emily and I were in a tough financial situation, my grandmother stepped in and she helped us by paying for a refi on our home mortgage. And that actually lowered our monthly payments so significantly that it became this huge blessing to us that we are still reaping the benefits for today, even though we don't own that home anymore. We are in a stronger financial position today. We are able both to save more and to give more to those in need than we ever were before. So is an inheritance bad? You know, when, when she offered to help us out, she we said, Thanks, Grandma, but we're not laying up treasures on earth, you know. <laughs> is that how we should have responded to her? No, of course not. The point is, is that Jesus is drawing our attention to the fact that money is a tool, but God is our treasure. And it is good to invest your money, but the minute that investment becomes or takes the seat of God, you've actually made an exchange, You've traded one for the other. And if you have done that, if you have made that exchange, traded stuff for God, excuse me, God for stuff, say it that way, then you need to know that living that way will actually destroy you. It will destroy you. That's what Jesus is saying. Your heart will deteriorate like moths eat wool and rust eats metal. And Jesus is now going to explain that with a slightly different analogy in verses 22 and 23. Here's what he says. The eye of the lamp 
sorry, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Huh? What? <laughs> I don't know if that's ever you, but sometimes Jesus says things where I'm just like, what? What, do you, what exactly are you talking about here? That's, that's how I felt when I read this this week. What is Jesus even saying? Let's, let's just define some terms here, okay? The eye is symbolic of the heart, okay? That sounds like, what? Hold on. Why, why are we doing that? That's just an old kind of idiomatic way of Hebrew people describing the heart at times. They would talk about it that way. And the heart was not just the seat of the emotions. It was the seat of the whole person. Everything that you are, your desires, your will, all of you. And secondly, the body wasn't viewed as this thing that's like detached from your desires, from your spiritual uh, being or any of that. But the body is the whole person, not just our physical bodies. And when Jesus says healthy, he means pure or sincere or singly devoted, okay? And so in the same way that you walk in the light of what you can see with your eye, you also live by the direction that your heart aims your actions. So he's saying that where your heart is, you will live from that place. Everything that you do will come from there. And Jesus is inspiring us to have a healthy eye or healthy heart filled with light rather than the darkness of evil, including the love of money. Why is he doing that? So that we can live a life totally devoted to the service of God. Totally, so that we live a purposeful life directed toward our true goal, the worship of God, the worship of God. It's what we were actually made for, friends. And so having laid out this metaphor for being whole, Jesus is now going to return to where he began in verse 19, just in a slightly different way. He said, do not lay up treasures on earth. How, don't, how do we not do that? By allowing our love for God to dictate the way in which we use money. Holding our things with an open hand and an open eye to those in need. If we don't, if we clench our fists around the money that we have, then it becomes a God to us. That's what he's going to say. Verse 24 no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, Jesus isn't talking about service here like, you know, you get service at a restaurant, okay? That's not the kind of service he means. He means worship. Service means worship, and everyone Worships. Everyone lives for someone or something, whether you're atheistic, agnostic, you're Buddhist or Baha'i or Hindu or Christian or Muslim or anything. You worship. The question is, who or what do you worship? The question is not 
will you serve a master? The question is, which master will you serve? God or money? And it's not money itself that Jesus is juxtaposing with God here. It's the love of money. It's turning money into God. And the word translated here, for you guys who are word nerds, is really fascinating. The word translated here as money is mammon. And mammon was another kind of ancient Semitic idea uh, that medieval Christians came to believe was basically money personified. If you go and you search mammon on, you know, Google image, you'll see all these medieval drawings of this like demon god that's money personified. And I think that helps us understand what's happening here because Jesus isn't saying, again, it's not the money itself, it's the God at the root of the money that you have enthroned in your own heart. You cannot worship both God and money. And someone might say, oh, but Jesus, can I just have both? Can, can I just have, you know, eternal salvation and a lot of money? Why can't I have both? Jesus says, that's not how this thing works. Why can't you worship both? Jesus says, because you're not two people. You're not two people. You are whole. And Jesus is actually proving his thesis that he began earlier in on the Sermon on the Mount, saying, you must be whole. You must be complete. You cannot be a divided person. And to believe otherwise is a lie. You're either devoted or divided. Now, now as Christians, we are all in the process of becoming more and more who God is making us to be. And that process won't be complete until we see Jesus face to face and we stand in his presence. Until then, we're engaged in a spiritual war, both within and without. But what Jesus is proving is that while there is still work to do on our hearts, and while he is still making us whole, we must be just as devoted to that process as he is. We must be just as devoted to our Heavenly Father as He is. And we can't live the lie or live the darkness, if you will, that somehow we can be devoted to our Father and money. And He's forcing our hand to decide. He's forcing our hand to decide who or what is your treasure? Who or what are you living for? What controls your decisions? Is it God? Or stuff. And you might say, well, I don't know. I mean, how, how would I know? How could I be sure one way or another? I want to spend some time contrasting these two things. Four signs that you love money more than God versus four signs that you love God more than money. Okay? So let's look at this. And as I go through these things, it's probably not a comprehensive list. These are just the things that God brought to mind to me as I was thinking about this this week. What, I, what I'm not aiming for is, man, I just really want you to feel so bad. That's my goal. No, that's not the objective. That, the point that I'm trying to make as we contrast these things, and you may be able to say, oh man, I'm totally in camp one. I, I have signs in my life that I love money more than God. Well, that is a great opportunity to allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart, and to change your heart, to fill you with His grace, 
that is abundant and free, that will enable you to move from that place to a place of going, God, I want to love you more than money, and I do, and I'm growing in that, okay? That's the aim. So, so if you will, just I want to encourage you, just prayerfully evaluate your own heart as we go through each of the things on this list. Let God search you. Let him expose those things in your hearts so that he can change them, okay? So number one, first sign, you may love money more than God. You hoard what you have been given. You don't, you know, give to the work of the church or of missions or of ministries or give to the poor and and the needy. In fact, you think of all sorts of reasons why the person who is in need is not worthy of your money. You come up with all kinds of excuses and ways in which you can avoid contributing and and giving resources away. Or maybe you do give, but you only do so reluctantly or out of sheer guilt. Like, I am going to feel so bad if I don't do this that it'll, it'll feel a little bit better just to kind of get it off my plate. So you hoard what you've been given. That's the sign that you may love money more than God. Second sign, you live in constant fear and anxiety that you won't have enough. Now, Jesus is going to address this problem in full next week. So come back and let's look at that together next week, this whole issue of fear and anxiety around God's provision. But for now, what I want to point out about it is that this fear that you'll never have enough may show up in your life in your willingness to overwork. Now, there are a lot of reasons why people overwork, but one of them might be in your life that you are afraid that you will not have enough money. And so you may outperform all of your coworkers, your teammates. You, you may work really, really hard to get that bonus or that promotion just so that you can try and address that fear and anxiety just, just a little bit. If I could just have more. And if you want more money because you're afraid that you will never have enough, then you have this kind of insatiable appetite for money. And what the Bible teaches us is that an insatiable appetite for anything is a good sign that that thing has become your God, that that thing has become your idol. It could be food, it could be sex or money or power, anything that you are just like never quite satisfied with and you always are wanting more of it is your God. So that's... uh, Sign number two, that you may love money more than God. Sign number three, you buy things that you can't afford. And you might go, well, that doesn't really sound like loving money to me. But remember, storing up treasures here on earth, right? Jesus is saying uh, earlier, he said that that is a sign that you love money more than God. And, and so often in our culture, the best way for people to get to the stuff is to borrow fake money that they can't ever pay back, right? Credit cards are such a problem. All different kinds of debt are such big problems in our culture. And one of the ways in which we understand idolatry and, and worship of false gods is that we are willing to sin in order to get it. 
And sadly, that's what is true for, for this one. You buy things that you can't afford. And, and so often in our culture, this is paired with number two. You have this cycle of, I'm afraid I'm not going to have enough money. And then you buy things that you can't afford and you go deeper into debt and it causes greater degrees of fear and anxiety. And it's just this vicious cycle that you feel like you're never going to get out of. You know, one definition of idolatry is using something in a manner contrary to God's design. Using something in a manner contrary to God's design. It's thinking that we have more wisdom than Him and choosing our own path. And that's what I'm talking about here. Because the Bible says the borrower is slave to the lender, Proverbs 22.7. And so I need to pause from what we're talking about here and just say if you're somebody who needs some help learning how to build a budget, learning how to create a strategy for getting out of debt, we have wise people in our church who love discipling people in their finances, helping people worship God with their money. And so if that's you, I want to encourage you, get signed up on our Connect card. I'm going to throw this up here. And, and we're going to, we have a bunch of different people who would love to get to meet with you and just work through those things with you, okay? So please don't hesitate to reach out. Fourth sign that you may love money more than God is you get touchy when other people try to talk to you about money. I heard a statistic at one point that uh, most people in America feel more comfortable talking about their sex life than they do their spending, which is just as much a sign that we have a distorted view of sex as it is uh, that money is a very sensitive topic. And so if you don't want to talk about money, it may be in part at least that money is a very personal matter. But it also may be a sign that money is an idol. And so you've got to let the Spirit of God, again, search your heart, investigate. The more defensive you are when people like your close friends or your spouse or somebody asks you about money, the more likely it is that you are touchy because you don't want anyone to touch it. You don't want anyone near it. You're like Gollum with the ring. You're like, mine, my own, my precious. Like, you can't get near this thing. Oh, man, that's an idol right there. That is an idol. Okay, so now we're going to move now to the contrast. What, you, you may not love money more than God. You may actually love God more than money. And if so, this is a time to celebrate. Even if, even if there were ways that God convicted you in the first, but there are also ways that He shows up in your life in these latter ones, in, in the love of God, it's a time to celebrate the grace of God because those things wouldn't be in your life if He hadn't already been at work in your life. So it's something to go back to and go, thank you, God, for the grace that you've given to me. So here's four signs you may love God more than money. The first is that you give generously. You give generously, and you may go, well, okay, but how do we define generously, right? Well, it's, it's pretty simple. You take your net income, and you divide it by 100, and then you add four, and, and in the square root of, no, I'm just playing. Um, 
It's not an equation. It's not an equation. We all know that being generous is a flat fee of $3,743. No, <laughs> playing again. Okay, the Bible doesn't put a dollar amount on this. It doesn't. And that's good news because we're all in different places, not only in growing in generosity, but in places of our financial position. And so being generous could be anything from like last week when little two-year-old Briar Bridges put a penny in the offering box, which was amazing. I almost started crying. All the way to one of the members of our church giving their car away to a homeless member of our church, which also happened. And everything beyond that, everything between that, generous is a heart posture that we have because God has been so generous to us. Generous is our posture because He has poured His love into our hearts so that we love Him and we love others. And this open heart, again, leads us to have open hands to those who are in need. It leads us to actually make adjustments to how we save, how we spend, so that kingdom work might go forward in the world. So you give generously. Sign number two that you may love God more than money is you use the unknown of the future to depend on God. Now again, this is coming back to what we're going to look at in much more detail next week, but this is kind of the flip side of that fear and anxiety. You know there's a different way that you can respond to the unknown of the future. We got to acknowledge as human beings, it's hard to not know the future. It's hard to be limited, but we know that God is not limited, that God does know the future, that God plans the future. And so trusting Him, loving Him more than money, includes trusting Him to, uh, in greater and greater degrees of dependency, knowing that He knows the future, knowing that He plans the future, and knowing that He promises to take care of us. Number three, the third way that you might love, third sign that you might love God more than money is you seek to grow in wisdom so you can steward what God has given to you. And you recognize that everything you have ultimately belongs to God and you are just a steward. Everything you have is from His hand. And so you don't hold on to what you have with clenched fists, you hold on to it with open hands. And yet you also want that to grow, right? You want that to grow so that you can multiply its usefulness for the kingdom. And so you want to learn, how could I steward these resources that God has given to me? Fourth sign that you may love God more than money is you freely talk with people about your money. Now we said earlier, money is a very personal issue, right? But for those who you trust, for those who you know, money is easy for you to talk about it with them because you have nothing to hide and nothing to defend. Even your mistakes, your sins, and your failures are covered by the blood of Jesus. Amen? And so you want to grow in worshiping God with your money and you see talking about it as an opportunity rather than a threat. So this is another, the fourth sign that you may love God more than money. And I want to share with you now just a couple of community group questions, then a hit a story and return back to the gospel before we close things up. Two community group questions that can spark 
just thinking more deeply about these things and hopefully some good conversation. One is, what habits in your life increase your love for stuff? And then what habits in your life increase your love for God? And the point of this is to, is to be moving away from a love for stuff, a love of money, toward a love for God in all things. And sometimes that means becoming aware of these things that you are doing on a regular basis. It might be scrolling through you know, the, the shopping websites and just kind of wanting more and more. That might be something that you need to give up. I'm just giving you one example. But what habits in your life increase your love for stuff? And then, man, what is it that, that draws you to greater and greater degrees of loving God so that you can move in that direction? Okay, a story I wanted to share with you uh, is a friend of mine. I'm going to change his name just for the sake of anonymity. It's, we'll call him Jack, okay? Jack. And, uh, and Jack... This uh, story took place years ago. He was an empty nester already at the time. He was in his late 50s. Dude had a successful business. He made a lot of money. He had you know, a huge house. He had lots of amazing stuff. He would go on trips with his wife, right? He was also a leader in the church, and he taught the Bible, and so everything was good. At least it, it seemed that way. But the problem was, he thought that he could live a divided life. Jack thought that he could live divided. He was living in the light of God in much of his life, but he had this secret love lurking in the shadows over here, and that was a love of money, a love of, of stuff. And he was willing to do anything that he had to in order to get it. And though his wife didn't know it, all of these possessions that he had been accumulating were all being purchased with credit cards. But this was still concealed. She didn't know. And one day, Jack was having a discipleship conversation where his friend was asking him about how generosity was going. You know, how is giving to the church and to ministries and to the poor and, and these kinds of things? How is that going? And Jack started getting really angry. And his friend's like, whoa, dude. Chill out. What, what, what are you getting so worked up about? And finally, after the conversation progressed long enough, finally Jack broke. He broke and, and he confessed all of this darkness that was going on for years and years. And he felt freedom for the first time in years. It, it was so good. And in that moment, he, he wanted to stop and pray and he confessed this sin to God. He confessed having this divided heart, and God in His grace just showered him with His presence and, and forgiveness. And, and Jack committed in that moment to changing. He said, I'm not going to do that anymore. And then came the hard part. It would have been easy if all he had to do is go, I'm so sorry, God, and then just kind of along and just kind of do his own thing, keep going down the same path that he had been on, but that isn't how this works. He didn't want to do that because he was returning to a devotion to God. And now he had to make some significant adjustments in his life. He had to take some very difficult steps. First, he had to confess to his wife that he had racked up over $100,000 of high-interest credit card debt. Devastating. 
Not only the debt itself, but the lies that he had told her for all of those years. But she graciously forgave him. And then he goes and he tells his small group, and they graciously forgave him. But then Jack and his wife, they spent the better part of the next several years opening up their bank account statements to different advisors and and people who had experience in these areas, and then reforming their finances and their spending habits to the point where they weren't going on any frivolous vacations, they weren't buying those lattes every day, they had to make changes until finally, by God's grace, after many years of diligence, they were completely out of debt. Praise God. Amazing. Now, you might think, that sounds like torture. Give up overpriced coffee? Like, why would I do that? (laughs) But you got to remember, that didn't matter to Jack anymore. It's not that it was easy, but he was whole. He was whole. He was free from living for stuff. And he was living for God, which meant that his heart was full He wasn't lacking in anything. He actually then overflowed into generosity. Once they had gotten out of debt, his wife and he had both been on a trajectory of growing in their giving year after year. You see, Jack got it. He got it because God is our treasure. We must be devoted, not divided. And here's the thing. The love of material possessions comes from a belief that you are lacking in something. But you need to know that if you are a Christian, you're lacking in nothing. Literally, that's what the Bible says. You are lacking in nothing. You don't need to become rich. You already are rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. What? Jesus left his eternal riches in glory in heaven, came down into the utter poverty of humanity. Even lower than that, came to the place of giving up his life on the cross doesn't get any poorer than that. Why? So that you could become rich. Christian, you've got everything. You've got everything. Do you realize what you already have? Our appetite for earthly treasure is insatiable because by its nature it cannot satisfy us. It was never meant to. It never will. But God in his nature is the kind of treasure we were meant for. As St. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Today, may we leave all those loves that, that destroy us and keep us longing for more, and may we come home to our creator who satisfies our souls. Let's pray. Father, we recognize how much we need to love you, how much we want to grow in loving you and not things. 
And yet, God, we confess that this is a challenge in this life. That, God, we are in process and we need you desperately to come and change us. Give us your grace. Help us to see new ways forward from the ways of darkness, the ways of distorted loves. Free us from the love of money, we pray. And as we respond to you right now, God, we pray that you would just get a ton of glory in this moment, that that you would actually reorder those loves in our hearts as we sing to you, as we respond to you. God, send us from this place changed people that we might be more and more who you've called us to be, that we could be those generous people who are giving to your mission, giving to those in need, not living in debt, but living freely for your glory, stewarding what we have for the sake of your name. Help us, God, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.